Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. In this episode, we're joined by Julio and Sean to talk about crowdfunding. We've gotten a few requests on Twitter to explore this topic, and it's actually something that Sean and I don't know much about. So we brought in an expert, and we brought in someone who's about to crowdfund their own product. Sean, why don't you help us get started? Sure thing. And Julio, give us a quick, brief introduction for people who might not know what you've done. You worked at Kickstarter for a few years, and what did you do with them? Yeah, so so I was at Kickstarter for about five and a half years, and my work at Kickstarter was um, a role called director of uh, community outreach. So I was responsible for the team that went into the community of of people designing technology or design products, and both evangelize essentially for Kickstarter in that community, but also try to help that community understand what it takes to succeed uh, when you're launching a product on Kickstarter. That was my role over there. Awesome. And you run Launch Studio now, which also helps people do Kickstarters, right? Or Absolutely. Or crowdfunding yeah. in general. Yeah, crowdfunding in general. We do focus a little bit on Kickstarter because all of our instructors, that's their background is launching products on Kickstarter more than, than on other platforms like Indiegogo. A lot of the things, the, the skills are the same on either one. But you know, this is in many ways the, the education curriculum I wish we had when I was a Kickstarter that you know, then I set out with a few other creators to, to, to make this a real thing um, after I left. Got it. And so, Sean, now over to you. You're creating a biometric sensor, and I'm assuming this is like some headpiece that can, you know, something with your, can you explain what you're working on? And this is something that's going to be crowdfunded soon, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, my background is in neuroscience, um, and I got my PhD in neuroscience in like 2009. And then I spent the next decade waiting for somebody to build a motobit. Um, and, uh, around 2018, I realized that someone was actually me and my company connected future labs. Um, so you're, it, 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 it's, it's not, it's astute that you would think it would go on your head, but actually we're building something that goes, um, anywhere on your body. Um, it's, we tried to make a small sensor that you could stick on your arm or your leg or your head or wherever you want. And it immediately starts picking up signals cool. from your body. Sean, you're going to a crowdfunding campaign right now, right? Can you tell us a little bit what's going into that? Absolutely. Yeah. We've been um, working on a motivit for the last two, two and a half years. Um, and as we were starting to get serious about crowdfunding is fortunately for us exactly the timing that Julio launched uh, launch studio. Um, and so we were one of the first cohorts to um, take his course and just learned so much about all the things that go into creating a crowdfunding campaign, everything from building community to uh, getting your uh, your bomb costs under control, and then ultimately to press outreach and actually making your campaign a success. Awesome. And we'll make sure to put Emotibit and the uh, launch studio links in the show notes so people can check those out. So Julie, I'll start with you. What types of products do you find work best for crowdfunding? I'm going to jump right into like, how can people, how can people, how can the audience get what they need to know whether crowdfunding will work for them? 
Of course. I, I think the first thing is, you know, physical products work much better than digital products. Um, you know, then when it comes to the world of physical products, some of the things that are really tough, if you have a product that's very, very inexpensive uh, on a unit cost basis, it can be tough sometimes to crowdfund because, you know, then in order to reach any kind of sizable goal, uh, you need to have a huge number of backers. Not to say that that's not doable, doable, but but that, that ends up being very tough. Projects that have... Um, Really, really high price tag. Uh, you have the different set of uh, challenges uh, because it is a product that has a really usually long and drawn out decision cycle. You know, mm-hmm. um, so those. I mean, of course, you've seen amazing, you know, digital fabrication tools that cost a few thousand dollars do really, really well uh, on on crowdfunding. But that's also because those communities are actively already on the platform, and, and there's already a lot of overlap. But when it comes to other products with a high price tag. That can be difficult. Uh, in general, crowdfunding is good for consumer products, not for B2B products. Um, you know, we've seen a few, or I've seen a few B2B products try to, to come to life through platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and they just really struggle because it's, um, you know, mostly, you know, an audience, like a business audience looking for a business tool uh, has a different procurement process, even for a startup, even for small companies that, uh, and they usually are buying for immediate needs, not a need that they might have, you know, six months, eight months, 12 months down the line when they might actually get the product. So those are just some, I think, of, of very broad, like if you're kind of in, in some of those areas, low price business product won't work, probably won't work for you. There are products like, of course, like Emotibit, which is a product that is, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are going to use that that are using it in a professional capacity, in a research capacity. Uh, but it's still a product that is kind of in that borderline, you know, where it still connects with a lot of makers, with a lot of enthusiasts, you know. Um, and, you know, I think, I think um, so there is a little bit of this blurry line as well. Um, I think the last thing I, w- I would say to like, um, is your product right for, for crowdfunding? You know, there are definitely some communities that are especially strong on crowdfunding. Like when you talk about photo gear, when you talk about digital fabrication tools, watches, and those communities, you know, I think there's a special uh, level of opportunity for you if you're working in one of those areas. But, you know, we constantly see people launching products in new areas in crowdfunding and being able to succeed. Um, And a lot of it happens to rely on the amount of pre-work that they do before they launch. You know, if you're bringing a new community that you're trying to get to engage with you through this process of crowdfunding, you just have to do a little bit more work in preparing to launch than you might have to do if you were launching a product that's tapping into these communities that are already on the platforms. Okay. So knowing those helps a lot as well as it seems like if you're doing electronics, things like consumer electronics, your B2C, like you were saying, is there a particular price point or, or price range that you find works well? So like do really, really cheap stuff work well? And you said really expensive stuff do not. Is there like a, like a sweet spot? I mean, the, I think the traditional sweet spot, and and again, I'll I'll, I'll say all of this is, is with a grain of salt because like we've seen creators make amazing things and succeed, at you know with with really inexpensive products and with really expensive products. But the real sweet spot, I think, is around that hundred dollars, which is you know mm. products. I I think are products that people can be somewhat impulsive about, you know, as much as it's a different type of impulsiveness. It's not the kind of impulsiveness that you buy something at a store for immediate gratification, but it is the kind of impulsiveness where you can invest that money uh, towards getting something that you think is really cool, 
but knowing, you know, in crowdfunding, there's some level of risk uh, that you might never get that thing, or at the very least, you might get that thing considerably later than you were hoping to get it. So uh, I think that's a price point that, um, you know, people are less worried about about those trade-offs. So, so that's a sweet spot. But, you know, I think some of my the best, my favorite campaigns, some of the creators that have done the most amazing work on crowdfunding and have had the most amazing success have actually had products that are, I would say, a little bit north of that, you know, a few hundred dollars um, price point. So that's still, I would say it's outside of this like core sweet spot, but it's still like a very feasible area, like between $50 to a few hundred dollars. I think it's kind of like the, the larger rung of that outside of the, the bullseye, but still very much in, in, a, in, a, in a good zone from a price perspective. Yeah, that helps a lot. Thank you. And, and Harris, you had a examples yeah, here. We've had some examples of past guests who have been similar in terms of their pricing. I just want to talk about them real quick. Joel Murphy had Open BCI. They had some early bird pricing uh, for some of the, you know, outside of like get a sticker, or get a T-shirt. But once you talk about like the real product, right? They had a seventy-five dollar, eighty dollar early bird pricing, but really they started at ninety-nine and up. And then they had a one at three fifty, four fifty, six fifty, and a thousand U.S. dollars, and then uh, some up from there. And then Matt Liberty of Jewelscope, similarly, uh, he was a higher one at uh, $450 for Early Bird. Now, these were both on Kickstarter, and we'll put these in the show notes so you can actually see their campaign pages. Um, but these were both very successful campaigns at higher prices. And the thing that really stuck out to me, what you were saying, Julio, is this maker academic research focus where in time there will be business applications for these but like right away some fortune 500 company is not going to buy through kickstarter but maybe that same engineer who hacks on the weekend who also has that corporate job will get one if it's interesting enough and then maybe in six to 12 months there'll be a corporate buyer down the road so there does seem to be some if there's i'm imagining a venn diagram here of different use cases. And it does seem like the maker academic research sort of tinkerer mindset where someone who'd be willing to take a chance with a few hundred bucks, they could become corporate customers later. Is that right? Absolutely. I, I think absolutely. And I think one other example of this, there is this uh, company called Looking Glass. They make these holographic uh, or volumetric displays. I mean, uh, they call it holographic displays. It's, it's, it, it, they are really amazing, but they're you know, they just ran a campaign that did really well, which is a very accessible version of this product. But the original version of their looking glass that was launched on Kickstarter was around $1,000 a piece, um, did really well, they raised, I think, $800,000 or a little bit north of that. And then that was not that was a product that was really more for enthusiasts, people who are really into 3d creation. But then, you know, within a year, year and a half, they created a higher end version of that, that they were really selling to corporate clients, you know, that, that really went into this more professional market. And then they came back around and did the very accessible version of their product, which is their looking glass portrait, which was a few hundred dollars, which was like $200 for, you know, a desktop, small desktop version of that. So that, that a company kind of shows a little bit of this kind of um, flux that, that you see some creators having between kind of enthusiasts to like everyday people who might want this technology to also developing technologies that are really, you know, $5,000 holographic displays that only, you know, research universities or corporations can likely afford. One more thing I just want to touch on here. You know, I think the question is like, where are you creating value for the user? So maybe a corporate buyer would buy, I'm looking at Looking Glass now, you know, they have this incredible 8K version of their product where if I'm an architecture firm, yeah, maybe I would say no problem. That's a great deal. And a big part of it is showing off to the clients and things looking good. So maybe they're willing to pay more for that. 
Um, so I think you have to think about what is the value that you're creating and then what are people willing to pay? Do they need a, like a NIST level of calibration for a product? Do they need to be able to maybe use a board and take it into FCC and CE testing? I think these are ways that people can think about maybe going up market without sort of fundamentally changing their product, but maybe getting more margin because they're solving a more valuable problem, or at least in economic terms. But I think to your point of like the value, I think that's super crucial. Even when you look at another way that like you've seen higher ticket items work on Kickstarter, which is, you know, a lot of the higher ticket items that have worked on Kickstarter, it was like, it was a CNC mill that all of a sudden it was a $2,500 CNC mill, like the Nomad CNC. But that was in a moment where most other CNCs were $10,000, $20,000, you know, or, or considerably higher, or even what Sean is doing right now, you know, which is, you know, Sean's product, I don't know his final price point, but I know it's not a hundred bucks, but it's completely compared to, to the, the other products that, that offer similar functionality, it is, you know, packaged in a really, really affordable and uh, easy to use package that makes it really stand out, you know, so. Yeah. And also speaking to, to something you brought up earlier, you know, our beta users, as we've been building community um, with beta users, um, we've had people coming from Nike Research and Apple and MIT and all these different uh, places, some of whom I, I suspect are coming as individuals, um, but are interested in exploring these things and then may end up turning into something that's that's more of an official uh, B2B type relationship down the road. That's really cool. And you're able to leverage both of those. So Sean, a question for you, and this is a general like overview question of crowdfunding. Has crowdfunding evolved into this pre-order system? And this is everything I read like, oh, we should view it as a pre-order system or really it's it's meant to be funding for R&D, not for a pre-order system. So Sean, what's been your experience trying to set up for this? Are you going to sell the emoji bit as like a pre-order through this crowdfunding or is it really like help me fund to get manufacturing? Cause those are kind of two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Well, so in, uh, I think in our case and in general, probably, although Julio uh, can speak to the generalities better than I can, um, you know, we've invested a lot in the R and D we've invested two years, you know, multiple people working um, at least part time through, through those years. So we've invested a ton in getting our product right and building our community. Um, and so for us, really, it's about scaling up. Um, because in order for us to hit our numbers, um, in order for us to bring down the price, uh, like like Julio said, to get to that 10x less than uh, our competitor, um, we really need to sell at least 1,000, hopefully uh, 2,000 units um, so that we can be manufacturing at those volume prices uh, for the silicon that we need. Um, so that's what it is for us, um, is being able to uh, democratize uh, the sensor we're building by having those volumes. So that's a really good place. That's a really good way to look at, yes, I should do crowdfunding uh, to make sure you can get that minimum, basically a minimum order. So you have that break even point so you can manufacture at that volume. Um, so that's a very specific question because I would I would not have thought about that. Um, and I just see people like, oh, we should we should crowdfund it. Right. Just go in like, oh, we should crowdfund it and like not ask that question of like, why should we crowdfund it? So, Julie, I want to get your perspective yeah. on this whole whole thing about like, is it a pre-order system? I think I think that the use of crowdfunding now has diversified a little bit in terms of like, it's not just one thing. You know, I think there are companies that come to crowdfunding and use it as a launch platform, just as a mechanism, you know, because they've essentially 
the, the, the way crowdfunding works, there are some dynamics at play. Like there's the urgency that's created. There's this time frame. There's this goal that you set. And so some companies just want to tap into that. They just, they don't need the funds. They are literally using it as a pre-order system as a way to structure a launch campaign. So that you have seen more companies in the last few years use crowdfunding in that way. But you still have a lot of companies that are using crowdfunding really in the way that Sean is describing here, where it really is about funding, uh, being able to, to scale your, your manufacturing to a certain level where you can get these price breaks, where you can make that product in mm. an affordable way. You know? and, and then, but you also have other companies that you know, really look at it as an opportunity to have direct relationships with their first customers. So they look at it as, you know, their primary goal from doing this is more around um, connecting with their first customers. Um, and, you know, and, and, and of course, there are some companies that are using, I mean, even talking to, you know, Mark Barrows, who is the founder of this company called Moment that makes these really awesome lenses for, for mobile devices. And now they make a lot of other stuff too. But they've launched a lot of stuff on Kickstarter. And for them, it's not that they need the money, but he always talks about it as like offset, like offsetting this cash risk of like this big investment they need to make when they're, whenever they're manufacturing something new. So even if they don't need the money, you, they're still able to minimize this risk uh, associated with this upfront investment that they would need to make to set up the manufacturing lines. I do think one crucial thing to note is several years ago, you know, or when I started working in, in crowdfunding around 2013, there was this narrative around like, oh, with crowdfunding, I just need a napkin sketch and then I'm going to, you know, put it out there and people are going to tell me that they like their idea by giving me their money and then I'm going to develop this idea and then I'm going to get it to a point where it's manufacturable. Uh, that is not realistic um you know i think it was always very risky but nowadays it's just not realistic for many reasons you know everything from the rules of crowdfunding platforms having evolved from people being more savvy about you know uh, whether or not to pledge a, a campaign and expectations around that and just from an entrepreneur perspective that's a horrible thing to do like you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're selling your product for less than it costs to manufacture it because you never really understood what it would cost to manufacture it before you put a campaign together and started raising money for it uh it's not you're you're uh, you know the money you raise on crowdfunding is like a debt that you're paying back in product it's not capital that you're raising like from a vc that's going to help you fund development of new products Harris, I'd like to pause real quick and talk about our sponsor, Twilio. You actually use them for some of the things you're working on and have some experience. What do you know about Twilio? What can you tell us? Absolutely. So speaking from a founder's perspective here, I am a really big fan of Twilio. Chances are, if you have a business that's even remotely successful, you have customers and you need to communicate with those customers. And Twilio has a whole suite of different ways to do that, no matter what kind of company you're running. They have a lot for hardware, but they also have a lot for software, email, text, whatever you think of. They've got some products. They also do other things. So there's SendGrid, Authy, which is two-factor authentication. You may not realize, but that's actually a Twilio product. They integrate with all the things, and they host these great events like Twilio Signal. I'm just a really big fan of the things that they make, but I know that you've had some experience working with them as well. So I've done a couple of things with their services at SparkFun to make some fun projects to show for videos, but I saw a recent demo 
where Edge Impulse was using Twilio to send an automated notification to a cell phone. And the idea was they created this embedded machine learning project that used a camera to look for elephants and people in an image or a video stream. And if the person got too close to the elephant, the idea was this was bad, right? It's a poacher or something like that. And you can imagine this is, oh, there's a package and a person gets too close to your package or whatever it might be. It would then use Twilio to send an automated text message or notification to your phone to instantly let you know that, hey, something's going wrong. There are people too close to this thing or these objects are in the frame that aren't supposed to be. So this is where integration with Twilio comes into handy and it just makes it so much easier to do automated stuff with cellular. If you're interested in learning more, go to twill.io slash hello blink. Now let's get back to the show. So I want to get into when should you consider in our last 10 minutes here, I want to talk about when you should consider crowdfunding. So I think Sean touched on that a bit for his specific product. Um, so Julie, if you want to talk a minute about, I've got a product idea, I've got the prototype, I can make a video, right? I'm not at the, I'm pe- way past the napkin sketch stage. And so I'm looking at going into, okay, I'm going to try to sell this thing and I can either bootstrap it and like, you know, make five, 10, maybe take a little bit loss initially to see if there's a, a you know, market for it, or I can crowdfund it. Do I use it as a way to market my product or do I just use it as a way to get that manufacturing over that manufacturing hump to get those um, price breaks? Like when should I consider it? So I, I think, I mean, it's good to consider it like the possibility of it early on. And the reason being is because, um, you know, there are the, the community building work that Sean mentioned that they're doing and they've been doing for a while is really crucial. Like nowadays, you know, unless you're Apple, you know, doing this approach where you're like, keep your work hidden. And then all the, the all of a sudden, the day that you're launching, you know, you, you kind of do this big reveal and expect the world to care. Uh, that's just not realistic for most small entrepreneurs. Like that's just not, um, I, 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 that's an unfortunate truth. So you should think about it early because you should, if you are considering doing it, you should start early finding ways to share about your work, share about the development, share about your thinking around this area. But in terms of how, where do you have to be when you actually decide when you're getting ready to, 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 to launch? I think there's two litmus tests that you need to, to have. You need to be far enough along that you understand manufacturing enough that you can price your product and know how much money you actually need to raise so you can set a realistic goal. And you need to be far enough along that you have prototypes that look and function like your final product so that not only can you capture those in videos and photos that bring it to life in a really compelling way, because you're, you know, essentially your, your product is your story when you're in a crowdfunding campaign, but also so that you can do demos at events, you can do demos at, uh, to press. Like, so those are the two kind of litmus tests that you, like, if you're really thinking about crowdfunding and you're asking, am I ready to, to, to take that leap? you need to be able to answer those two questions uh, positively. Yeah, that's perfect. And something that that just verified my notion of crowdfunding because I've never done one. So this is super useful to hear. And especially to talk to somebody who's worked at Kickstarter and somebody who is going to run one and in the process of launching. So something that I've always thought is that crowdfunding is not a substitute for marketing. You can't just throw your thing on Kickstarter and expect to get eyeballs. 
it can help like like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, all these platforms have various newsletters, you know, front page reveals, outreach, all of these things, but that's not a substitute for you doing your own marketing. And that's something that's come up a few times in the show. And you nailed exactly what we've said to other entrepreneurs as far as like document as you go, tell the world about what you're building. It seems a little counterintuitive, but you're right. You're not Apple. You can't like reveal on, on day one and suddenly have like millions of people wanting to buy it. Um, so you have to get an audience first and then start start to like use the Kickstarter to bolster both, you know, funds as well as some of the marketing. So it can, it can complement it, but it's not a substitute for marketing. I've seen failed campaigns because they didn't market it prior to the launch. So Sean, I want to ask you, what have you done to build up an audience for Emoti Bit? Like what story can you tell there? Yeah, well, I've been, I was really lucky because um, even before we thought about, um, you know, really going headlong into a crowdfunding campaign, I happened to know this, uh, one of the most knowledgeable people in the world, uh, Julio, uh, about how to, to go into this stuff. And he said, you should um, develop alpha and beta partners. You should get these into the hands of people. Um, you will learn about your product. Um, you'll learn what they like, what they don't like about it. Um, and um, through using your product, you'll, you, you'll get testimonials, you'll get um, uh, showcases that you can show the world, uh, other people using your product. And so we early on uh, developed partnerships with a group at uh, NYU, another group, uh, the University of Shkudamin in Canada, um, and they started doing research using Emotibit. Um, so one uh, in Canada, they were doing risk-taking, uh, studying risk-taking behavior um, in, in snowboarders on a half pipe, um, and then measuring their physiological responses to uh, that risk-taking behavior. Um, in, at NYU, they were studying interpersonal communications um, and and how physiological responses co-vary between two people as they're communicating with each other. Um, but then we've gone on, and like I mentioned, we've had folks um, uh, at Nike Research, and we've had folks, um, one guy is studying climbers of Mount Everest um, and wants to look at their physiological responses and how to, to feed that back into it. And so, you know, through this whole process, we've learned a lot about our product, and we've learned a lot about um, uh, our customers um, and and how to have this communi community kind of organically grow on its own. Um, and so for us, that's been kind of the the critical piece of the puzzle. Um, and we will find out in the next uh, a month or so uh, how well we've did that, how well we've done in that department. That's awesome. And so how did you go about finding these groups? Are there like message boards? Do you just like cold outreach and say, hey, we're working on a thing and you look like an interesting research group that might use it? How did that how did that develop for you? It's been a learning process for us. Um, you know, luckily, I'm tapped into a lot of different communities, uh, which intersect with Emotibit. You know, I, I, like I said, I've wanted somebody to build Emotibit for 10 years. Um, so I, I was core to that community. And, and I sat in kind of the nexus between the research community and education community, art community, and maker community. Um, and so have a lot of uh, connections into those uh, deep connections into those groups. Um, 
And so just started talking about it with my friends and then having them talk about it with their friends. Um, and obviously making a website was a place for people to start coming together. Um, and But we struggled to build our community for a long time just because building community is hard. Um, and so getting beyond the kind of first and second degree of connection um, was something where taking Julio's launch studio course, uh, we learned more about how to connect through Facebook, how to connect through Google ads, um, and use some of the tools that are available to go beyond your immediate networks and really start expanding um, in, in, in kind of a more exponential viral type way. Awesome. So you really started by leaning on your network to begin. You grew a network and then you leaned on those people. And then through Julio's studio, you learned how to go beyond that. Am I getting that broad overview correct? Okay. So network, network, network. <laughs> That's the big thing. Have connections, have people so you can lean on them. Yeah. And for us, it worked really well. You know, I'm, I, I like to grow slowly um, because for, for me to have, you know, a hundred or a thousand or 2000 emotibits in the world before it's ready for the world um, doesn't make any sense. So, so for us, it was really a process of starting with 20 and then we grew out to a hundred. And then um, now we're working on our second batch of hundred um, beta units. And then, like I said, we're going to try to scale up and really bring down the prices so that um, uh, we can reach a bigger audience and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to being inspired by how people use uh, a motivit. This story reminds me of, there's these quotes about, you know, it takes 20 years to become an overnight success. And there's this quote that's attributed to like a number of different artists about how it sort of takes a lifetime to make something in a day because a lifetime of knowledge, you know, you're embedded in this community. You understand it really well. These are personal relationships that you have. And I think the same is true of the past, uh, guest episodes that I mentioned, Joel was involved in the biosensing research community. Matt Liberty spent decades as an electrical engineer in solving these problems. So, you know, you can't crowdfund your way to solving a problem that you don't understand. It sounds like for the right founder who really understands a problem, crowdfunding can be a really good non-dilutive way to get capital into your business, but only if you really understand the space and the problem. And in that case, it can be a really powerful tool. Otherwise, it sounds like maybe it could be a distraction for people. And so I don't want to undersell how much time you've spent working on this problem, Sean. I feel like that is the secret here. And then crowdfunding is one tool of many. But you could probably persuade an investor too if you told them, hey, this is, this is the number of hours I've spent in this space. And this is why I'm making this tool. You could probably convince someone to write you a check, an angel investor to write you a check, but then you also have to give up part of your company, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to undersell how difficult uh, getting investment capital is either. Um, there, there are challenges in both. In our particular case, we're creating an open source product, um, which there are uh, examples of angel and VC investing in open source products, but it definitely, um, it's a lot easier to get angel investing um, when you're closed source and, or, or VC for that matter, when you're closed source 
and um, also when you take ownership of the data, which is something we we set down both being open source and giving the users 100% ownership of their data. Um, you know, that closed a, a lot of doors in terms of VC and angel investing. But um, so crowdfunding is a natural fit for us. Um, and whether it's a natural fit for, for somebody else, you know, I think like Julio could speak to this better than I can, but there, there are a lot of companies nowadays who are uh, VC-backed companies who are also crowdfunding um, in addition to that um, as a way of risk mitigating or the other topics that Julio brought up. So uh, to close this out here, um, I want to just do like a very quick review of like the four big crowdfunding platforms, at least that I know of, and help me fill in any that I might have missed for people who are listening and are curious to go check check them out. So my understanding, the big one is Kickstarter. This is a lot of like consumer electronics. I think like board games show up on here a lot. Um, huge I do board see, games. Yeah, huge no, board games. Huge I, board games. What's that? No, I just said huge board games. I think we're having a little delay. Yeah, huge board yeah. games. <laughs> um, as, as well as I do see some video games like software is kind of eh on crowdfunding sometimes but I see video games pop up on Kickstarter especially from like people who broke off from larger studios and are now like oh I used to work on the Final Fantasy series and like now I'm gonna like do this Kickstarter campaign um, I see that happen Indiegogo was made for more like films wearables am I missing something in Indiegogo here no, Indiegogo, I mean, I think, yes, originally they, they started with film but, they, but they've made uh, a lot of headway and, and they are a pretty uh, I mean, them and Kickstarter are competing on product design and technology stuff in general, like gadgets to clothes and whatnot. You know, Kickstarter's still still bigger, but those two in the world of bringing physical products to life, those are the are the two juggernauts. Um, you know, in the in the industry. Got it. And so for those, I usually see more the consumer electronics within that impulse buy range is like the vast majority of things. Like you said, there's like tools, like, you know, thousand dollar tools that I see pop up on them. But generally that like 50 to a couple hundred dollar consumer electronics, they're packaged, they've got FCC testing, they're ready to like be used by the mass public. Um, That's not to say that open source tinker tools are not on there, but I usually see the like you know, very few lower supply type thing up here on crowd supply and group gets is where I usually see those types. Like if I were to spin a board, I would probably throw it on like crowd supply and group gets to help me just get to manufacturing if there's like a smaller market for it. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm only familiar with with crowd supply to be actually to be honest, but yeah, they they they're great for for um, just what you were saying. You know that like a lot of different boards kits uh and they just have a great community and they're really focused on on that area so they're really an amazing um platform if you if that's the type of work that you're doing that you're trying to bring to life awesome and i know there's also like gofundme but that's more like personal funding for stuff and not what we're talking about here but there are other platforms did i miss any in this like genre of consumer electronics or hacker tinker open source stuff not not really i mean i think if you were to Look internationally, of course, there's a few others in a few different parts of the world, but uh, but these are the you know I think I think Indiegogo and uh, Kickstarter Indiegogo are the two international ones. Crowd Supply is mostly I think uh, like English speaking countries, mm-hmm. um, and then you have a few like in Japan that are pretty big in China, but it's not uh, I think worth spending a lot of really even mentioning them. But th- but there are like regional ecosystems as well that exists. Got it. Awesome. And I just, I, I just oh, talked ahead. to uh, 
to uh, Ron Justin from Group Gets uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, he brought up the interesting point that there's it's not necessarily either or. You can do all of the above. Um, you know, you can launch all on as many crowdfunding uh, platforms as you want. You can do it uh, all hmm. at once, or you can do them serially. Um, you know, the, there are challenges in terms of did you hit your goal, uh, making sure your goals make sense, even if you only hit on one of the many platforms or whatever the case may be. But, um, you know, I thought it was an interesting prospect to think about not having to choose one necessarily, just choosing which one you do first. Yeah, it's not mutually exclusive. That's a, I didn't think about that. That's a good idea. Uh, that's everything I've got. So thank you guys for answering questions about this. It enlightened a lot of things about crowdfunding that I didn't know. Harris, anything else? No, I really appreciate the conversation. I think there's a lot here. So folks, check out the show notes. There's going to be a lot to follow up on if you're interested. And check out Emotabit because Sean is launching and I'm sure he would appreciate your support. Thank you guys for being on the show and answering some great questions. Um, good luck on the, the campaign. I hope it all goes well. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really fun, guys. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skalriza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash routine.